0: So we have today and next week to close out our SENT series. We've been going through the first part of Acts as the church is, is expanding and God is doing some really special things that uh, he's still able to do today and sometimes does them in different places, uh, but just some special manifestations of his spirit in the, in the beginning of, of the church as the, the church is multiplying rapidly in the early days since Jesus has gone to be um, with the Father and has sent the Holy Spirit. And so we've just kind of been looking at what that means, uh, that we're sent, and we're sent in different ways and for different reasons. Um, Last week, we were in the, just the very beginning of chapter six, talking about the seven men who were appointed to serve the Hellenist uh, widows who were being neglected in the food distribution. So there was a complaint that came up and said, hey, the Hellenists aren't getting um, the food that they're supposed to be getting. And so they got the church together and said, we have a problem, there's a need. Um, And so we need to meet this need. So let's get together and come up with a solution because the apostles who were doing most of the preaching and teaching, having spent time with Jesus, and so they're the ones who are able at that time to connect all this Old Testament scripture that the Jews have been studying and reading for years and years and years and years and connect that all to Jesus and say, this is how you connect the Old Testament to the way, right, the kingdom way. And so they're doing the teaching and preaching um, and the, the prayer ministry, and so they're saying if we start to get too bogged down in the serving of the food, the daily distribution, then we're neglecting our primary ministry, which is preaching and teaching. And so they select seven men from among them, uh, of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom to uh, take on this ministry uh, to the Hellenistic widows. And so we saw that um, serving is, is needed, right? The church has needs. Uh, were to serve with integrity. There were some kind of qualifications. Don't just pick any seven joes off the street. Pick seven men who are full of the spirit and who are of a good reputation, and who, um, sorry, <coughs> who are able to serve. And and so they uh, they ordain those men. They lay hands on them. They pray over them, and they send them uh, to serve. And so we uh, we looked at that just those seven verses last week. Uh, One of those men who we had already looked at the week before was Stephen, ended up being the first martyr, Uh, went from, again, just being found faithful and and obedient, and so he's appointed to the service ministry, uh, and then he ends up getting arrested and preaching and preaching this amazing sermon, uh, so amazing, but about Jesus, so it enraged the religious leaders. They dragged him out uh, side of town and stoned him to death. Um, And so we'll look at another one of those, deacons on that service team uh, this morning uh, in Philip. And so we're going to be in chapter 8, even though we kind of went backwards and reversed to chapter 6 and all that kind of stuff. We're picking up in chapter 8. And so this picks up right after um, the stoning of Stephen and his death. And chapter 8 begins by telling the reader that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. So it says Saul approved it. In verse 3, it says that Saul is ravaging the church. Um, and so we're going to talk more about Saul next week in our our final sermon um, as we see this conversion of Saul. So remember him ravaging the church, him holding the coats as they kill Stephen. We'll talk about it again next week. But um, this persecution is starting to increase. Persecution is ramping up. And so the believers are scattered from Jerusalem. Uh, and so you would think like, those who are doing the persecuting are probably like, this is victory, Uh, that we have the Christians on the run. Um, But if you remember, Jesus had set this kind of blueprint, this template for his witnesses. Uh, And they would start in Jerusalem, they would go to Samaria, uh, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And that's exactly where the Christians are being scattered during this persecution, right? They're being scattered to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so Uh, Even as they intended for evil, as we've seen throughout Scripture, uh, God will often use it for something good. And so, as Jesus had declared, uh, his witnesses are are being spread from Jerusalem. So chapter 8, verse 5 says, Philip went to Samaria and was proclaiming Christ to them. And um, before we pick up in verse 26, there's a story about this man named Simon the Magician. Um, It says that he believed in the gospel, but it also, there's this weird story about how Uh, He's very into like, oh, the Holy Spirit can do uh, miracles and and powerful signs and wonders. And being uh, someone who kind of made a living with, you know, that kind of trade, whether illusions or whatever it might have been, he was like, I I want that. So he's like, give me that spirit so I can do some of that stuff, Uh, almost in a way of like, that's profitable to me. Uh, I can make more money if I get that spirit power. And so they rebuke him. Um, We don't really get to see a whole lot of the rest of the story. They just kind of rebuke him, and uh, it moves on. And says they kept preaching and teaching other people. Uh, And then we pick up in verse 26, and that's where we'll start reading, 26 through the end of chapter 8. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, the, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. <clears throat> so last week, we talked about being sent to serve. Uh, we're sent, and we're on mission, and that can mean a lot of different things. And last week, we saw that the church has needs, and the people in the church are sent, and being part of being sent means we serve in the church. Well, this week, we're going to... S- Say we are sent to disciple. We're looked at. We're looking at how we're sent to disciple. The Great Commission we've talked about when Jesus gave his followers to go, uh, or more literally, as you are going, make disciples of all the nations and teaching them all that Jesus has commanded and baptizing them in the name of Jesus, uh, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we're to make disciples. That's part of our mission. So we're sent to disciple. This is the Great Commission being lived out right here uh, with Philip and the Ethiopian. This is for every believer. It's not just for the 12 disciples. It's not just for professional ministers. The Great Commission to make disciples is for everyone. To make disciples, teaching and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So let's look at a few characteristics of discipleship. First, discipleship involves sacrifice. Discipleship involves sacrifice. Philip has already exhibited this in the fact that his following of Jesus has resulted in him being scattered from home. He was faithfully serving. He was found to be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom, right? Uh, And so he was of good reputation, just being a good Christian person. He's called into ministry there. He starts serving the Hellenistic widows. He eventually finds himself in this teaching and preaching role, um, and he's scattered from home because of the persecution. Now, he could have... Once he is displaced from home, he could have, out of fear, just kind of huddled up. He could have just stayed where he was, not caused a stir. He could have stopped preaching and proclaiming the name of Jesus, which is what uh, the persecutors wanted them to do. But he's a man full of the Spirit, remember? Or he wouldn't have been selected to serve the widows back in chapter 6. So being an obedient, faithful believer who is full of the Spirit and, and bearing the fruit of the Spirit, he finds himself then spreading the good news of Jesus wherever he goes. He takes this opportunity to live out what Jesus has said, the blueprint of you'll be my witnesses, not just here, but in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So he finds himself in Samaria, and he proclaims the name of Jesus. And I have a little map that shows us to show kind of this sacrifice, um, to show that he didn't just run and say, okay, well, I'm hiding out. I'll proclaim the name of Jesus while I'm here. But as we'll see, he starts here, he gets scattered up to Samaria, whether it was this town known as Samaria or just the region, it's up here. The Spirit tells him then to go south to the road to Gaza, and this is where he's going to meet the Ethiopian, right? And then after he ministers to the Ethiopian, it says the Spirit, like, zaps him away, kind of, and he finds himself in Azotus. And then it says he went on to Caesarea. And so, again, this isn't just like, well, he scattered out of necessity and just kind of stayed put for security and safety. I mean, he's traveling quite a bit in following the Spirit to where the Spirit leads, uh, sacrificing, again, his will, his ambition, his goals to what the Spirit wants him to do. And it's in this sensitivity to the Spirit, again, he's sent south from Samaria toward Gaza, and this is where he encounters the eunuch. <clears throat> the Ethiopian eunuch here is a, a God-fearer. Um, being Ethiopian, he would be a Gentile. He's not Jewish by race. But he was in Jerusalem to worship, it says, to worship the true living God. So he's uh, either just a God-fearer or converting even to Judaism. Um, there's even evidence that I was reading that he may be a full convert to Judaism because he has a copy of the scriptures with him, which would not be common. Um, not everyone would have access to that. <coughs> so he could be a full convert to Judaism studying the Old Testament, right? Studying the prophets. Uh, And he's reading out loud to himself. He's not reading to anyone else. This was just kind of how they did it. If they were reading, they would read out loud. And so Philip hears him, but he also hears the Spirit. The Spirit tells him to go join the Ethiopian's chariot. He ends up uh, going for a ride, right? Because they're talking, and so you think, oh, he just stopped, and he's talking to him. But it says uh, he orders the Spirit, I mean, the chariot to stop, right? We also read that Philip ran to catch him, right? So the Spirit... The chariot is kind of on the move and Philip's having to, uh, to catch up and be a part of it. Then he ends up going for a ride with this guy. Um, again, this is not Philip's plan. He's just being obedient to the Spirit. Um, so just a simple sacrifice here of my day doesn't belong to me. It belongs to where the Lord is leading me. Um, we see that in Philip's obedience here. <clears throat> and he's surrendering his schedule to what the Spirit is calling him to do. Um, And we see this is what the Spirit wants for both of these men, right? This is a divine encounter that the Spirit has uh, brought Philip into the Ethiopian's life to help teach and explain the Scriptures to him. So Philip is showing us that discipleship or following Jesus and being available to disciple others means stepping into someone else's story, stepping into someone else's life, even for just a moment or just um, however long the Spirit determines amount of time. This is, again, a great picture, as we talk about all the time, of sacrificing our goals, our dreams, our ambitions, our plans for the sake of living out the Great Commission. If we're going to make disciples, it's going to be messy. It's going to be inconvenient. First of all, we're imperfect, right? Before you add anybody else to the equation, uh, even in Christ, I'm still imperfect. I still have a flesh. I still mess up. I still make mistakes. I still fail. So it's messy already. And then we're going to say, go encounter someone else, right? And go step into their story, invite them into your life and walk and step into their life for a little bit. This is discipleship. So you have messy, broken person one and messy, broken person two getting together. There's potential for just all kinds of mess and brokenness, right? It has to be the spirit that works sanctification through these two people. So these two messes get together to coordinate some kind of growth in Christ, right? So it's gotta be the spirit that's gonna work this discipleship between these two broken people. But knowing this and accepting this, uh, because ignoring our commissioning is not an option, it means sacrificing, right? Recognizing that it's going to be messy, it's going to be inconvenient, it's going to cost me something. That's just the way it is. I can't say, well, it's messy, it's inconvenient, it's going to cost me, and so I'm not going to take part in that. That's not what God has called us to. If God has called us to it, it must be worth it. Living as disciples and making disciples will cost us something. This is a marker of following Jesus. Even if you don't disciple anyone else, following Jesus is costly and sacrificial and inconvenient by yourself. So I think sometimes we get frustrated because we think I can manage the Christian life to a point where it's convenient for me and pleasant and comfortable for me, which probably isn't really what the Spirit has called you to as an individual, so then when we introduce the idea of go and inconvenience yourself with someone else's schedule and mess and brokenness, we think, that's not Christianity, right? <laughs> My Christianity is safe and convenient and comfortable, but it's not what God has called us to. And so I think if we were really living like Philip, right? Philip was probably used to this. He's like, uh, "Well, go over there, talk to that stranger in the chariot who's very you know very powerful and okay. Like, he's not like, why would I do that? That would be inconvenient. I mean, it's a dude who just had to leave town, right, because people are getting killed. So Philip's used to this. He's been obedient to the Spirit. He knows that following Christ is costly and inconvenient. And so when God adds another interruption to his life, he's not like, that's not what I signed up for. He's like, that makes sense. That's exactly what I signed up for. That's par for the course. And so he's obedient to that we should be a little bit more uncomfortable in our individual Christianity so that when God brings interruptions into our lives with other people, other people's brokenness and messiness, we're not so um, uh, resentful or resistant to it. Um, We recognize that's part of following Christ. That's part of following Christ together as well. And I'm not, again, emphasizing this to discourage or dishearten us but to encourage us that that's just part of what God has called us to. As we wade into the waters of discipleship, as a learner or as a teacher, we find it inconvenient and messy that we shouldn't back out of those waters because it's worth it, and that's what God has called us to. So think about the reasons or the excuses that you've given or that we've given for not pursuing discipleship, either as someone who needs to grow in Christ or someone who needs to teach others. Because when I say teacher, I mean anyone who's in Christ who's further along than someone else, right? It's not someone with formal training, not someone with a formal role within the church. It's just anyone who is further in their walk with Jesus that can turn around and teach someone else who's not as far along in Jesus. That's a teacher. Even if you just have come to Christ by faith, you know enough to tell someone else how to come to Christ by faith. That's discipleship, even in that little slice of Christianity. So we should view the sacrifices of discipleship then as investments in future disciples. These inconveniences, these interruptions, the messiness, the brokenness of discipleship, of stepping into someone else's life, into their story, and letting it kind of interrupt (laughs) your life, your story. It's an investment in future disciples. If we want to invest in others and grow in Christ ourselves, though, We don't need um, to simply, sorry, lost my place there, uh, simply recognize sacrifice. We need to listen. Discipleship involves listening. We saw in this passage that Philip gets to teach the Ethiopian because Philip listened to the spirit who told him to rise and go and to join the chariot. He's able to explain the scriptures to the Ethiopian Because Philip has listened to the apostles' teaching. He's listened to the word of God. He's listened to people explain this is how the Old Testament points to Jesus. And so if he hadn't listened, he wouldn't be able to teach others. The entire blueprint for discipleship that Paul gives us in 2 Timothy 2.2 hinges on listening. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So we always like to say there are four generations of disciples in this passage. What you, second generation, have heard from me, first generation, entrust to faithful men, the third generation, who will be able to teach others, fourth generation. That can't happen unless people are listening, listening to what the other person has said. So if Timothy didn't listen to Paul, Timothy wouldn't know anything. So Paul would say, uh, can you go and entrust what I've taught you to others? And Timothy would say, what have you taught me? I don't know, nothing. But that's not the case. Timothy has sat and listened to Paul. He's learned and he has grown. So Paul can go to him and say, what you have learned, what you have heard from me, you turn around and tell others. And when you tell those others, they will then tell others. And think about that fourth generation. They never heard from Paul. Paul didn't teach that fourth generation. He didn't even teach that third generation, right? So you go down the line so far, if you're able to trace, like if we went around the room and took the time to do this and said, how did you hear about Jesus, right? You might name a pastor or a relative or somebody who introduced you to Jesus. You may have no idea who introduced them to Jesus or who introduced them to Jesus, right? Right? This idea of the gospel spreading around the world despite persecution, despite every reason to say, stop this or else, like they keep telling the disciples, stop it or else, right? And they're just like, we we can't. We can't stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. And so you tell it to faithful men who will then keep it going down the line. And I say this all the time. That's why this church is here today. That's why First Baptist is here today. This is why the churches down the street are here today. Because people have continued to hear and teach others from generation to generation. <clears throat> if we don't listen, then we can't teach it to others. We're to listen to the word in reading it, in hearing it taught. We're to listen to the Spirit's guiding and directing and living out our mission. We see this again with Philip. We see both, evidence that he has listened to the teaching of God's word and evidence that he is listening to the Spirit. As the Spirit says, go over there. Go talk to this person. Go to this town. Are we listening to the right voices? Are we taking in the word of God? Are we students of the word of God? Are we walking in the spirit, alert and sensitive to the spirit's guiding and directing in our lives? Are we seeking to understand like the Ethiopian did? How can I understand without a guide, he says. And then he reads something. He doesn't just read it and close it. He reads it and says, now, now who's, who's speaking here? Is, a, is the prophet speaking of himself or of someone else? He's, he's putting questions there. He wants to learn. He wants to understand what he's listening to. And it's easier now than ever before to be a student of the Bible, to be a hearer of God's Word. Almost everyone has a smartphone. Not everyone does, but almost everyone does. There are free apps that have the Scripture, the entire text of the Bible, in multiple translations, right there in the palm of your hand. And most of the apps now, you can even click a button and it'll read it to you. So even if you don't want to read it with your own eyes, you can set it and listen to it. The Bible read to you. The Word of God read to you. There are even apps like the Dwell Bible app where you can add different accents to the reader and different background music and select a reading plan to say, I want to listen to Psalms for the next 30 days, or I want to listen to the whole Bible for a year or two years. Then you can set it to just play it and read it to you. It's easier now more than ever before. Think about what this eunuch had to go through to get a copy of the scriptures, right? Not available to everyone, and now it's so widely available. So are we listening to it? Are we taking it in? Are we hearing the word of God? Listening to the spirit's guidance? And some is more than none, right? Who think, well, I can't sit and read forever. I I can't even sit and listen to it for that long. It's just, I just, okay, verse a day, right? Start small, but just start listening to the word of God. Some is more than none. And finally, discipleship involves obeying. So discipleship involves sacrifice, discipleship involves listening, and discipleship involves obeying. Philip, we see, is listening to the right voices. He's listening to the Word of God, he's listening to the apostles' teaching, he's sensitive and listening to the Spirit's guidance in his life and where he's leading. He's been a student of God's Word, right? He sat under the apostles. But it would all just be a dead end, right? It would just kind of be a a cul-de-sac where all of this information just piles up and ends if he wasn't also obeying turning around and teaching it and living it out. Remember again, he was chosen to serve because of his good reputation and faithful living. Several were there with the disciples, hearing the disciples teaching. But to go and select those who could serve, they said, find people of good reputation who are full of the Spirit, meaning you're seeing the fruit of the Spirit in their lives, meaning there's obedience in their lives. Not just an audience, not just whoever's here every Sunday or whatever time they gathered, but those who are living out their faith or obedient to what God's word has declared. He gets to teach the eunuch because he obeyed the Spirit's leading to Gaza and into the caravan to catch up with that chariot, go and talk to him. If he hadn't obeyed that, he wouldn't have the opportunity to speak into his life. Discipling others is itself in obedience to what God has commanded. We've talked about this, the Great Commission and the Great Commandment, right? If we're going to grow as a disciple, it's a matter of obedience, not just listening, but obeying. The eunuch trusts in Christ as Philip connects the dots from Isaiah to Jesus. It says, starting with this scripture that the eunuch was reading in Isaiah, he points it directly to Christ, and it's not that difficult because this is a passage about the Messiah. And so Philip connects the dots from Isaiah to Jesus, and then the uh, eunuch asks about being baptized. Baptism was a sign for Gentile converts to Judaism, and... Peter has preached baptism for the Christian converts as well, and so either way, this Ethiopian is either knowing, like, if I'm converting to this living God, this God of, uh, of the prophets, this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph, then, uh, or Jacob, uh, then I need to be baptized. But also, if he's surrendering to Jesus in this moment, which I believe he is, he's saying that I should be baptized, right? There's even, in some manuscripts, and it's not in the ESV, in some manuscripts, verse 37 says, when he says, here's water, why should I not be baptized? Philip replies to him, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And the Ethiopian replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. We don't find that in the ASV. It's not, again, in enough manuscripts to make it in here. Uh, but I think that that shows us that there's some evidence there that uh, this eunuch is trusting in Christ. And an evidence of that obedience to Christ, he, he wants to be baptized. This should be the natural result of believing what we hear, to be transformed by the word of God. We can't simply hear it, we must obey it. This is why James would later write in James 1, 22 through 25, But be doers of the word and not only hearers, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So James indicates that if we engage the Word of God and hear it, and it exposes our brokenness and shows us how, how to be different in Jesus but we don't pursue that change, then we've gotten it all wrong. We're like someone who goes and checks the mirror in the morning, and if there's like spinach in your teeth and your hair, I don't have any hair, but if I had hair and it was like all bedhead and you didn't want it to be, whatever it might be, little fuzz, you know, you saw that and you're just like, yeah, and just kept going. It's not the point of the mirror. Like, why use a mirror? <laughs> you check the mirror to be like, okay, everything's in place, or it's not, and I'm good to go, and so okay. So James is saying that's what the Word of God is. It's not for so you to read it and say, oh man, I am a messed up sinner. Yep, everything's fine. Now I know it. He's saying the Word of God is there to show you and reveal to you, oh, I'm a messed up sinner, I'm broken, I'm separated from a holy God in my sin and my brokenness, and I need the grace of God to get me through today. I need to lean into the character of God, I need to surrender to the Spirit's working in my life and so that the spirit will bear fruit in my life so it's less of me and more of him in just a broad sense of i need jesus but in a maybe in a more specific sense you're reading and say oh my goodness i've i've you know borne false witness against someone or i've used uh, my words for destruction as you might read in james that the, the tongue is powerful and it's it's like a forest fire it can turn a ship you read these kind of things and think wow that's amazing Or do we read it and say, oh, my goodness, I need to be more careful with my words. I need to use my words to lift up people and and to exhort and encourage rather than tear them down. Does my life reflect that, yes, I've, I've been a student of God's word, but also I'm obedient to God's word. I hear the scripture. I hear what God has commanded. But do I live it out? If I want to serve in the church like we read last week, I can't just be someone who who knows what it takes to serve. I need to have a life that backs that up. I need to have a life that shows I know Jesus and I live for Jesus. We have to obey God's word and be found faithful in God's word if we want it to transform us. That's where discipleship is really transformational, right? It's not two broken people getting together and just saying, yep, we're broken, Man, we're broken, but let's press into Jesus. What has he said about this? What has God's word said about this area of brokenness in my life? And how can I, day by day, surrender that area of brokenness to the will of God so that day by day I look more like Jesus and less like me? That's where transformation occurs. Not simply in listening, but in obeying the word of God. Listening to the Spirit's work in our lives. True transformation occurs when we hear and obey. This is true for discipling others and in being discipled. We must sacrifice. We must listen. And we must obey all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the sacrifice that you've made in laying down your life so that we might have new life in you. Jesus, for showing us that, that a life in you, it, it is abundant, it is fulfilling, it leads to glory for all eternity, and yet, as we walk this earth, it is a life uh, often of sacrifice and of suffering. And God, you have not called us to sacrifice and suffering uh, as it's just a way to punish us, but a way for us to become more like Jesus that we may suffer well by faith, that trials and tragedies might, again, turn us more to you, that we might press into you, cling to you all the more tightly. God, I pray that as as we seek to to live for you, we would understand that living for you means it's going to cost us something. Living for you means that we need to find others who are far from you, who are not f- as far along in their faith walk as we are, and sharing our life with them, stepping into their brokenness, being vulnerable with our brokenness, and yet in a, in a Christward manner that we would uh, move forward, uh, trudgingly so, God, as it may be, It might cost us, it might be messy, it might be inconvenient, and yet, if that is the mission that you've called us to with our lives, there is no greater purpose for us. There is no appointment or goal, milestone in our lives that is greater than the commissioning that you've called us to, Lord. So I pray that as as we find ourselves inconvenienced and uncomfortable, by your will in our lives, that we would be convicted of that quickly, that we would just surrender that quickly, that we'd be like uh, Philip that we read about today, who is just sent by you. He he understands the assignment. God, you've sent me. I'm on mission for you. Oh, you sent me here. Okay. Spirit, go over here. Okay. Talk to this person. Uh, I will get on this chariot that's going somewhere else, okay, I'll do that. Because that's the mission, that's the calling on his life. God, may we be found faithful to surrender our plans, our hopes, our dreams that they would all fall under the umbrella of your mission in our lives. Help us to see, God, that you, you have given us more information than someone else might have about you. We may not know as much as we want to. We may not know as the person next to us, but God, we know enough about you to share you with someone else. God, may we continue to grow in our knowledge of Christ as we continue to listen to your word and obey your word, that you'd give us more opportunity to share your word and bring others along, that they might also become part of the family of God just as we are Thank you for these examples, God, that we've seen. And we'll look at one more next week in the book of Acts of just how you work, how you expand your kingdom, how for whatever reason you have chosen to use the broken and the messy people, the church, to advance your kingdom. Let it be true of us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.